Morning, sleepy. Guess you want McDonald's for breakfast? Uh, how'd you know? You were sleep humming the McDonald's jingle. I don't know what you're talking about. You just did it. No, I didn't. So, McDonald's? I could use a cafe latte. There's a McDonald's for every morning. Start your morning at McDonald's with a delicious sausage biscuit and savory hash browns for only $1.50. At participating McDonald's for a limited time cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. How do you not hear that? Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Welcome World Seminar. Thank you for coming to the wind and the rain. I'm going to propose a, a number of questions in, in no particular order, just to try and unpack a little the, the deeper levels of meaning of the seminar title, Igniting the Universal Will to Good in a Time of Decision. What does it mean to say that we are in a time of decision? And what is the universal will to good? And how does it differ from goodwill? And how will igniting the universal will to good in ourselves and others help the world in this time of decision? That's the key question really, isn't it? Now this last question can be answered by considering a more general one. Namely, how can a spiritual approach to world problems, which is what world goodwill promotes, be of service? The answer to this lies in understanding what's really implied by a spiritual approach. Now, implied in this idea is first of all the notion that one is no longer satisfied with the surface of events, but is seeking to uncover their deeper meaning. In other words, a process of inquiry. Also implied is the notion that the tools of this inquiry include, but are not limited to, the conventional tools of thought. The rational mind is a powerful tool within certain limits. But those limits do exist, and beyond them, other aspects of consciousness, such as the intuition, must be acknowledged and used. Acquiring the ability to use these tools of higher consciousness requires patient effort. In other words, discipline or training. And the most effective way to train consciousness is through meditation. This explains why World Goodwill places a significant emphasis on meditation. It sponsors both the Goodwill Meditation Group and the Cycle of Conferences initiative, which we're going to be hearing a little bit more about today. It encourages meditative reflection on the problems of humanity. And its sister activity, Triangles, is also dedicated to the idea that human consciousness can be 
indeed must be enlightened through prayer and meditation. Participation in any of these activities is open to all. And there is further information in the literature at the back. One of the main results of such a self-initiated process of training consciousness through meditation is an increase in the power to observe life and all events with dispassion and detachment. Or as that great spiritual master, the Christ, told his, his disciples, to be in the world, but not of it. Why is this important? The contemporary spiritual thinker Lex Hickson suggests why in an interview he gave in 1995. Relying on Buddhist insight, and I tend to rely on traditional teachings rather than on my own bright ideas, we should be careful to be concerned equally about the relative and the ultimate. And that's a difficult balance to keep. So for instance, when someone says that we're just about to peek over the mountain range into the new age and there'll be a totally different way of doing things and we won't have money in competition, that is, I would say, a failure of concern about the relative. After the year 2000, speaking 95, there are still going to have to be laws and international agreements. Thankfully, there still are. On the other hand, I believe a world civilization of great beauty can unfold and really must unfold. There is a division in culture now between people who are visionaries and people who focus themselves entirely on the relative. We need people to take responsibility to bring these two positions together. There's nothing more depressing than someone who's always harping on the relative. Many social radicals are this way. Yet on the other hand, there's nothing more debilitating than someone who's always referring us to some grand vision without a deep sensitivity to relative concerns. End of quote. The practicality of the approach that the Christ and Lex Hickson are recommending is evident when we come to consider the great issues of our time. Issues such as financial reform, climate change, peace and disarmament, and so on and so on. These issues appear so complicated that they can bewilder the rational mind, and so emotive that they can sweep an observer away in turbulent, conflicting currents of opinion. But when consciousness is trained in dispassion and detachment, then a more accurate and compassionate assessment of the roots of a problem becomes possible. The simplicity of the underlying principles comes into view and the possibility of inspiration is increased. New ways towards a solution can be revealed. So if we've arrived at a measure of understanding why <clears throat> a spiritual approach is so important, let's now briefly consider the question, what is the universal will to good and how does it differ from goodwill?
I'm going to use a simple analogy that I hope will help. If we consider driving a car, the will to good is like the underlying motive for doing so. Doing some shopping, visiting friends, etc. Well, goodwill is simply the series of actions we perform to fulfill that motive. Turning right, accelerating, changing gear, etc. In other words, goodwill is the practical expression of the overarching will to good. That will to good is essentially as much of the dynamic quality of the loving purpose of divinity as can be currently contacted. Because it is divine in origin, it concerns the whole. In other words, it is universal. Now, goodwill is universal too, in the sense that it can be applied in any and every situation. And because it is so practical and useful, one may almost say homely, it is readily understood. When I was understanding the will to good, which is more, <clears throat> more abstract and all-encompassing, benefits from the training of consciousness mentioned earlier. Brief glimpses of it can certainly be caught by all who are seeking to serve. But in order to deepen that connection, the sustained and rhythmic effort to train oneself spiritually is more or less essential. So this increasing contact with the will to good is revealed as another of the main reasons for a spiritual approach. Let's turn now to the question, what does it mean to say that we are in a time of decision? I'm sure you all have answers for that one. It's perhaps the easiest one to answer for we have merely to look around us to see that humanity is facing a number of crucial decisions right now. The debate about the actions needed to combat climate change will come to a significant decision point just next month when the Copenhagen conference opens. War and terrorism continue to pose moral conundrums that call out for creative paths towards reconciliation, peace. Our speakers will be reflecting on these themes today. And there is ongoing discussion about whether the financial systems of the world are truly back in order and of how they might be more permanently fixed. The word decision is derived from the act of cutting or dividing, which makes sense as every decision marks a point of division between the past and the future. Every decision is a fork in the road with the need to choose which way we will go. This explains why decisions can sometimes be so hard. Because the rational mind can be a potent obstruction to moving forward into the future. There can be a fixation on addressing only what is, the so-called facts, the concrete realities. A fixation that can obscure our perception of what may be the possibilities of the future. 
It is also a well-known human phenomenon that we tend to fear the unknown. And what could be more uncertain and unknown than the future? We may attempt to produce grand theories about what the future will hold, proclaiming the inevitability of the triumph of the proletariat or the end of history. But the future has the persistent habit of proving these theories wrong. This is one of the reasons that the debate over climate change is so heated. Change in such a vast and complex system is difficult to detect and extremely complicated to model, giving plenty of scope for both sincere questioning and insincere and unprincipled opposition. Combined with this is a significant amount of doubt that either individuals or even nations can be effective in solving the problem. These three obstacles of a kind of obsession with the status quo, fear of what the future holds, and doubt as to the outcome of any effort can paralyze effort from the level of the individual right up to that of a civilization. And unfortunately, it does seem that our planetary civilization is suffering some measure of paralysis over the key issues that now face it. This paralysis is not a new phenomenon. Over 60 years ago, even before the end of World War II, Alice Bailey foresaw the cycle of major conferences and councils that would be necessary to rebuild the world. A cycle that the Cycle of Conferences Initiative is specifically designed to support. Since that time, the United Nations and other international bodies have convened many meetings to tackle the major issues of the day. And although some progress has undoubtedly been made, it seems that the steps needed to make a fundamental shift towards a world of unity, justice and peace are always going to happen next year or in five years' time. The participants always seem to be missing that last little push of political will to take the world over the threshold. It's not as if information on the urgency of doing so is missing. Report after prestigious report has warned of the dangers of inaction. For example, it is over 35 years since the publication of the famous Limits to Growth report. And thinker after thinker has presented possible solutions. To name but three, it is about 30 years since the publication of James Robertson's The Sane Alternative, Willis Harmon's An Incomplete Guide to the Future, and Theodore Rorschach's Person Planet, which all propose solutions. So we can see that we have been living in a time of decision for decades now, which underlies how potent the obstacles of obsession, fear and doubt are. How do we overcome them? Well, 
Overcoming the materialistic obsession with the status quo brings us right back to the fundamental importance of adopting a spiritual approach, one that is not tied to materialistic concerns. The antidotes to fear and doubt are hope and faith. Let's briefly reflect on a recent example where the power of hope and faith were demonstrated as summed up in the famous words Yes we can. In Yes we can we see hope and faith distilled down into a three word slogan or perhaps more correctly a kind of prayer or affirmation. The simple yet profound thought when given to masses of ready listeners as a formula of hope in a better future and faith in their ability to help bring it about through collective action struck a tremendous blow against the negative fears and doubts that were poisoning the atmosphere of the US presidential election. Perhaps the time has come for another affirmation that can push forward the agenda of servers everywhere. Now we will. This will is not the selfish, materialistic will of the individual who separates him or herself from others. Instead, it is the dynamic, inclusive will to good of the whole. It is contact with this will that we must seek to ignite in ourselves and others. The now in this thought is important because in one sense we are always living in a time of decision. And that decision is always up to us. Will we, in the present moment, place our skills and resources at the service of a better future for all? Or will we hoard them for the benefit of ourselves and the select few with whom we feel comfortable? If we do the latter, we will be ignoring the mood and tenor of the times, the Aquarian impulse towards sharing towards synthesizing all the many qualities that uplift and ennoble the human spirit into a new expression of truly planetary civilization. It is not enough any longer to be content with exchanging little pieces of our cultures and trading small tokens of our ingenuity. The time for recognizing the universality of human experience and of working to bring this into physical expression is now. The evolution of consciousness is summoning us to move onwards. Let mind and heart be united in the service of the one. It is up to us whether we heed this call. Thank you.
Now it's time to hear from May East, who's flown all the way from Fintorn this morning, can you believe? So hopefully she'll stay awake during the presentation. Um, she's currently the Programme Director for Gaia Education, which promotes a holistic approach to education for sustainable development by developing curricula for sustainable community design. While drawing upon best practices within eco-villages worldwide, Gaia Education works in partnership with universities, eco-villages, government and non-government agencies, and the United Nations. She's spoken at uh, one of our meetings before, and uh, we were just talking about it at lunch. I think it was just before the Earth Summit in Rio, which took place in June 1992. It was a pleasure to invite her back after 17 years <laughs> to discuss forging new relationships with the Earth. Thanks. Thank you, Dominic. Good afternoon, dear co-workers, ladies and gentlemen. The title of my presentation this afternoon is Forging New Relations with the Earth, and the subtitle is Someday, After We Have Mastered the Winds, the Waves, the Tides and Gravity, We Shall Harness the Energies of Love, from Teilhard de Chardin. So this afternoon, I'll be reflecting on three elements needed for forging new relations with the Earth. We start by looking at the need to establish those new relations. Then we will reflect on the will to good as an essential ingredient for the shift towards reduction of our collective consumption to levels that would enable natural systems to self-regenerate. And we'll conclude by exploring the role of education in this process of fostering the change. So, H.G. Wells once said that our generation is in a race between education and catastrophe. So I'll start by reflecting on the potential of the catastrophe so well documented these days. We all know that humanity faces an unprecedented crisis of global proportions that threatens our viability and the sustainability on the planet. In some parts of the planet, we are already suffering from the consequences of using up the natural resources at a far, far higher rate than they can be replenished by natural processes. The production of many of the essential biological and physical resources has already peaked. Forests, fisheries and coral reefs are damaged and disappearing. Soils are impoverished by overcropping and by chemicals. Diversity is reduced by genetic manipulation. The reserves of fresh water are diminishing and today more than half the world's population face, faces water shortages. 
So over and above, climate change threatens to make a large extension of the planet unsuited for food production and habitation. So if we continue in this way, changing weather patterns will create the droughts, devastating storms, widespread harvest failures, and rising sea levels will flood coastal cities and lands. And now looming on the horizon is peak oil with its coming adjustments and retrofits, including the probability of ongoing conflict of access to the remaining energy reserves of oil. All of these problems are quite real and by now well documented. But gaining awareness of the extent of the problem, of all these interconnected problems, is only half the project of becoming educated these days. I'll flesh out now one of the greatest threats ahead of us, which Dominique mentioned. Once just of concern of scientists and environmentalists, climate change is now becoming recognized as a major challenge for every sector in society. Over the past 18 months, leading to the climate summit in Copenhagen, we have seen an escalation of scientific, technical, and socioeconomic information of the risks of human-induced climate change with events, conferences, films, and debate on adaptation and mitigation strategies, contraction and convergence, carbon footprints, tradable energy quotas, carbon offsets markets, and so on and so on. We find carbon and ecological footprint calculators in fashion magazines, newsletters of aid agencies, budget airlines, global financial institutions, big corporations, it's everywhere. Four or five years back, few would understand the concept of ecological footprint, first coined in 1992 by William Rees, a Canadian professor at the University of British Columbia. In short, ecological footprint analysis offers a way of visualizing our resource use in relationship with the regenerative capacity of the biosphere. The ecological footprint is a great educational tool whose power lies in its, afford, in its ability to afford comparison in the most simple possible terms between the amount of productive land and resources that a population needs in order to support its lifestyle. It provides in one headline a summary overview of the sustainability, or more generally, unsustainability of a population current lifestyle. So currently, humanity on the whole is consuming natural resources at a rate that is roughly 30% above the maximum rate of consumption that could still be considered sustainable. One could say that to maintain the current habits of consumption, we will need a third of a planet more. The enormous inequality in levels of consumption is made apparent when we analyze the ecological footprint of individual countries. 
The global average footprint per person is approximately 2.85 hectares. Yet, the inhabitants of Eritrea, the country with the smallest ecological footprint, are leaving only an average of footprint of 0.35 hectares per person. At the other extreme of consumption levels are the inhabitants of the United Arab Emirates who have an ecological footprint of almost 60 hectares per person. Today, everybody seems to have a fair idea of how many planets we will need if everyone on the planet enjoyed average Western European lifestyle. For those who do not know, the answer is about three planets for the Western European lifestyle. And about five and a half, if North American lifestyles were to become a global trend. And yet, despite the increase in eco-literacy and the proliferation of how to reduce your footprint guide, there is no apparent sign of any drop in general consumption. Even with the economic assessments indicating that the cost of inaction will exceed the cost of taking early action, probably by several orders, sectors of society are still slow in responding. What can be happening? How it can be that the tidal wave of messages about the importance of turning off the standby function of our devices, using an energy-efficient light bulbs, traveling by mass public transport, buying locally to enhance local economy and diminish food miles, are not translating to significant reductions in resource and energy use. In the teachings, we learned that for change to happen, we need a combination of need and will. And that rarely we change because somebody gives us good advice. So we have just reflected on the need to change. The need to change and forge new relations with the earth. According to Irving, Irving Laszlo, ahead of us we have two major decisions or two major choices. Leading, designing, mastering the change, or becoming victims of it. So let's consider the second ingredient for fostering change. Let's look at will from a collective perspective. During the 90s, through the cycle of conferences led by the United Nations, we have engaged in an ample mapping exercise which identified the pressing environment and social justice problems ahead of our times. This cycle of international conferences produced well-discussed global agendas, such as Agenda 21, Agenda Habitat, Platform of Action, the Social Agenda. And parallel to the conferences, we witnessed an explosion of civil society involvement in all activities of the UN system, charting a new territory for humanity. The UN conferences of the 90s were truly multi-purpose, focusing on single emerging themes and addressing them from multiple perspectives. Never before 
there has been this extensive concentration of thought, emotion, and outer activity in most of the nations of the world centered around reconsidering and rebuilding the relations between humanity and the natural world. Major groups, delegates, negotiators, and heads of states all knew the failure of the agendas couldn't be contemplated. The risks were too great for our generation and the next ones to come. At that stage, in the beginning and middle of the 90s, women and men of goodwill from the four corners realized the need for sharpened determination and much faster pace to achieve the goals of the landmark UN instruments at all levels, global, national, and local. These committed individuals came from the non-profit and non-governmental world, and they started at looking after rivers and bays, educating consumers and sustainable agriculture, retrofitting houses with solar panels, lobbying uh, state legislatures, is it right? <laughs> about pollution lobbying, policymakers about pollution, fighting against corporate uh, trade policies, working in greening cities and teaching children about environment. They came from the four corners. Author and journalist Paul Hawking, who wrote an excellent book that I'm currently reading called Blessed Unrest, estimates there are over one or maybe even two million organizations today working toward ecological sustainability and social justice. By any convention definition, this vast collection of committed individuals does not constitute a movement. Movements have leaders and ideologies, followers. This movement is dispersed and fiercely independent it has no manifesto or doctrine. One of its distinctive features is that it is tentatively emerging as a global humanitarian movement, arising from bottom up. It is what an, uh, the writer and activist Naomi Klein, Klein calls the movement of movements. So the spirit that animated some of the UN conferences and their parallel NGO events secured that all these voices, the voices of the peoples of the world, were heard and taken in consideration. The events demonstrated the emerging collective will to good of civil society to set and influence agendas, to shift policy, and to shape world public opinion. Today, we recognize the role of the global civil society in challenging the deficiencies and providing the remedies for current mechanisms of our global governance. The United Nations can be credited for providing the forum that made much of this possible, particularly by leading the conferences of the 90s. Moving on, after five or ten years, time has come to evaluate and monitor the level of implementation of those global agendas. When we started to measure implementation against and towards the targets, we realized much more 
intention and determination was needed. This was particularly the case of the sustainability and environmental agendas. We went on to survey and see why we were unable to implement and advance the agendas as we expected in the 90s. And it became apparent that education, providing skills for behavior change, uh, was a key ingredient in the process of reversing unwelcome trends and ensuring strong environmental protection. In this context, as we realized that people had the need to change, the will to change, but didn't know how to change, didn't have the skills to do that. During the Johannesburg Summit in 2002, 10 years after the Earth Summit, the United Nations Decade of Education for Sustainable Development was launched. Since then, this decade is promoting a cross-cultural integration of the values inherent in sustainable development into all aspects of learning. Learning to be, learning to know, learning to do, learning to live together, and learning to transform oneself and society. So education has a paramount role to play today in different levels of change, because without appropriate skills training, we would not be able to redesign our human relations, our lifestyles in time to avoid major environmental, economic, and social catastrophes ahead of us. Without training that will enable us to live a simple, healthy, and productive life, we may not be able to deal with the complex interwoven transdisciplinary issues involved in the transition to sustainable societies, towns, cities, villages, communities, organizations. We're talking about an education where through an objective assessment of the state of the planet is followed by regional and community solutions. An education that empowers individuals and communities with the knowledge for shaping their worlds and becoming more self-reliant. An education where investigating theory is followed by practical application. An education relevant to peoples of both developed and developing countries, rural and urban regions. An education promoting and facilitating helpful planetary evolution and expanding the perceived limits of human potential. I work for three organizations that, in different ways, are fostering this sort of education. But I'll speak about the work being developed by one of them, called Guy Education. Guy Education is one amongst thousands of educational institutions contributing for this transition by promoting sustainability education worldwide. It was created over a series of meetings among experienced eco-village educators with academic and professional backgrounds in a wide range of disciplines. This circle of sustainability educators decided to call itself the Geese, 
global ecovillage indicators for sustainable earth, to acknowledge the importance for collaboration and roving leadership as exhibited by the migration behavior of a flock of geese. So guide education has its deep roots in the ecovillage movement. Its body of knowledge springs from the restless, impatient, continuing, hopeful inquiry of ecovillages acting as laboratories for sustainable living. The first achievement of the geese has been the development over 10 years of a curriculum which draws from the experience and expertise of some of the most successful community projects across the world that have diminished considerably their footprint. This curriculum has been taught in 21 countries in different stages of development and applied equally to urban and to rural settings. It has been translated into English, Spanish, Portuguese, German, Finnish, French, Japanese, Turkish, and has been virtualized, has been taught online, and it is a living curriculum. It has been officially introduced in 2005 to complement, correspond, and assist in setting a standard for the UN DES, for United Nations Decade of Education for Sustainable Development. According to the educator, David Orr, our task as contemporary educators is to equip our students with the practical skills, analytic abilities, philosophical depth, and moral wherewithal to remake the human presence in the world. The race between catastrophe and education that I referred in the beginning of my talks will be decided in all places, including classrooms that foster ecological imagination, critical thinking, awareness of connections, independent thought, and a good, inclusive, fiery heart. In our classrooms, we are looking at how to replace destructive economy with one that functions on current sunlight. How settlements can eliminate the concept of waste using energy and materials with great efficiency. How the built environment may capture the natural energy flows the manifest movement of the sun, the predominant winds, the relief and rocky system, the hydric resources, and the forest reserves and create productive cycles in the system. We're looking at how to shape eco-industrial parks where the wastes of or the emanations of a, one industry will serve as supply and raw material for production in a neighboring industry. We're looking at how to regenerate settlements, cities, towns in such a way that its way of life, business, economy, physical structures and technologies do not interfere with nature's inherent ability to sustain life.
We have now entered the second half of the decade, the decade of education for sustainable development, which is very much about appropriate skills to foster the regeneration of natural capitals of soils, forests, watersheds, and wild areas. It's about the social skills to restore broken communities and to create new communities that are working models of viability. It's about integrated design skills to promote sustainable urban planning within the caring capacity of our planet's resources. It's about relearning the practices of good farming, learning the sciences of powering civilization on renewable energies. At the same time, creating long-term economic, political, and moral arrangements that secure the well-being of the present and future generations. So my intention this afternoon was to reflect on the three main combined elements required in the process of forging new relations with the earth. The need, the will to good, articulated by civil society and education. Today, we are writing at this decisive chapter where civil society organizations are taking history in their hands and are reaffirming the vital role we have to play in the advancement of the ideals and practices of sustainable development. We know that sustainable societies are built upon sustainable communities, organizations, institutions. And to be sustainable organizations, institutions, and communities are taking leadership for their future with utmost seriousness. We are advancing our cause to networks and alliances of people's organizations and in solidarity with impoverished, marginalized, and subjugated people world over based on the principle of oneness of humanity. Together, we are meditating the plan into existence. Together, we are forging new relations with the earth. Together, we are stronger. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, May, for that wonderful, inspiring vision of what is being done and is, it can be done and needs to be done by all the many individuals and groups around the world. And now we've got time for a little bit of question and answers. Now, Joan has got a microphone and I'll ask you if you do have a question for, for, uh, for me or an opinion you want to express or comment, please wait until Joan reaches you because we're actually recording the meeting so it's not just a matter of being able to hear you, it's also the, the fact that we're recording what you're saying. And don't let, don't let be put off by that fact. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going on national television or anything like that. <laughs> so would, has anyone got anything they would like to ask me or an opinion they'd like to express? Is somebody here? Joan? There's one right beside you, and then we'll come to this lady here. Given that uh, meditation helps us to tune into the will to good, to Shambhala, 
and the word at Shambhala. Um, on a telepathic level, what recommendations or suggestions might you both have for in the step-down world of conventional media uh, such that we may use that media more effectively for attunement? Very interesting question there. I'm going to pass it to you first of all. You have more experience of working with media than me. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts? What about your thoughts? Maybe you want to introduce something and then we continue? It seems that you have an opinion there. I try to work with a lot of young people. I mean, I'm kind of a few decades on. And the thing is that if we look at the audience here, a lot of young people here. And I think that if we can remove this barrier that is physical, in our physical embodiments, we are souls of all sorts of experience and start to work on a soul-to-soul -soul level. Therefore, I guess in our journalism and writing and those who are creatives amongst us here, if we can start using the language of media, you know, the media of language in a different way, that is removing some of these barriers that often by conditioning are inherent in the language that we use, we take for granted, then we could start to seed the will to good and seed some of these visualizations into the language. We need to change the language, encode the language differently. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, <clears throat> two thoughts. One of them is around um, the emergence of the global civil society. This movement of movements. They are coming as the immune system of the earth. I think somehow it is emerging. And they don't have too much space in the conventional media. However, they are reaching out and they're making a great difference on the ground. And I wonder if we still have to aim to catch the attention of the conventional media in order to be able to uh, cross the tipping point. There's a very interesting book called The Tipping Point that says that we need to reach the critical mass is about 20% that we need for great shifts, for paradigm shifts. So, if uh, Paul Hawking is right, saying that at this stage we are between 1 million to 2 million organizations working for environmental protection, what is the tipping point? Do we really need the media in order to be able to do the shift to sustainable lifestyles? Or are we going to reach the critical mass in time that uh, we won't exhaust the natural resources. That's one of the thoughts. And the other one around youth. I think there's something around, I have two teenager daughters and they, they kind of uh, check me out all the time, my discourse. They keep checking me. If, if I start speaking to them and they start looking and turning the iPod, I, I realize that <laughs> I'm really not communicating, you know. And so that's very good. Uh, I think that we have to update ourselves truly, you know, by checking. And we need to communicate with the language of those that we want to communicate. Uh, and we, using, you know, the media, the Facebooks and Twitters. And um, if this is our aim, is to reach out towards the young ones. I, the final thought is that I've been coming to 
when I moved to Britain, I'm from Brazil, uh, about 20 years ago, uh, I started coming to uh, Kane School and Lucy's Trust events, and I was the younger one. And I'm so glad now that I'm not the youngest one anymore. <laughs> but 20 years ago, I was the youngest one. And, uh, it, you know, I have already gray hair, I have teenager daughters, and it's like, uh, it's still so meaningful. And I know there's younger people in this room ready to engage into what this is trust, the study, the meditation, and the service triangle. There's a time for this to happen in your life. Sometimes too early is too early. All I would add to what Mayor said is um, certainly I think it's clear that, that um, the electronic media, internet and uh, mobile phones, all of these things are becoming more and more important, particularly in communicating with youth and between youth. And uh, I, I agree with you that there is a definitely a need for new ways of saying fundamental truths, new ways of communicating the spiritual have to be found that are relevant, that, that can ignite uh, excitement and commitment among young people and old people, you know, and middle-aged people. All, we're all included, we're all in it together. We can't leave it to the kids to do it, we have to do it too. It's never too late. Stephen Fry has a great, you know, he's a great follower on Twitter and he's not exactly young. So, hope he's not here. Um, so, I, I, I completely agree with you that we do need to find new language and new modes of communication uh, to set this, set this kind of thing in motion. Okay, um, there was somebody here, I think, did you, did you have a point to make? If you come forward, John, please. Yes, the, the lady in front of you and then you can go next. <laughs> Um, it's very um, inspiring to hear about um, all the projects that uh, Maeve was talking about and to know that there is a lot of change going on. But on the other hand, it, was to, it seemed very much practical, all the practical things. Where is the true spirituality in that? Are, people, are those communities act actively drawing on spiritual resources which are far, far more powerful that's the that's the change, not to, to just to practically, which in a lot of um, state inverted commas third world um, countries developing, they want change because they don't have, and we have everything they don't have, and that produced that. But where is the true spirituality in all, all that? That's what I, what you talked about at the very beginning of putting those two things together. Is there this dynamic spirit, true spiritual element in all those things? <laughs> Interesting enough, Sherry Dominic, when the decade, United Nations Decade of Education for Sustainable Development was launched, was on the 1st of March of 2005. I was there, I was in New York. Mr. Matsuda, who is the General Secretary for UNESCO, was there. There was about 20 sustainability educators and about 20 UN officials. It was a small event, about 50 people. And at that stage, we talk about sustainability, looking at the three official pillars of sustainability, which is the ecologic, the economic, and the social. No spiritual, no worldview, nothing. There was the three. So the whole decade is gearing to equip individuals in the world to be able to design 
socially, economic, and ecological sustainable systems. So when we move now halfway through, and of course, the eco-village movement, where I come from, we've been always talking about the fourth pillar, fourth pillar, the, the, sustain, the spiritual, was the worldview. When we came to half of the decade now in Bonn, uh, in March this year, uh, there was about 120 ministers of education from 120 countries there, more than 900 sustainability educators. And at that stage, UNESCO launched the new platform for the next five years, and they talked about sustainability being the social, the ecologic, and economic, and the cultural. That was the closer a UN um, education and cultural and scientific organization can get into naming spirituality like a worldview. It's changing. It is changing. It's not from one day to another, but it is really changing. And I think this is like a very much also, um, we'll say in the eco-village movement, there's always a glue in your community. Some, some communities, the glue is the environmental with the spiritual. Some of them is just the spiritual, like out of you in India, the glue are the teachings of Sri Aurobindo. Eco-village in crystal waters in, in Australia, the glue is the permaculture. It's very practical. Their, their spirituality is waking in the morning and walking in, in, in the wilderness and observing nature evolving. That's a different type of spirituality. I think it's important to say that uh, the multifaceted aspect of the fourth pillar of, uh, uh, of spirituality needs to be considered as we start naming it. We're we starting to name it. Of course, here we name because this is a center, but there, saying we're starting to name in the official world. It's moving. I think I just just very briefly to add, I, I wouldn't be too worried about the fact that it may not be named or, or even be regarded as cultural or spiritual because I think all of these activities, these new activities are an expression of a change in consciousness and, and you know, as, as we're saying earlier, we don't always have the words for it. The words are, when we talk about sustainability, the sustainability is a, a a much used, even abused word that you know that people are always trying to find definitions for it. But um, I think ultimately sustainability is about implementing the will to good, really, in very simple terms. It's about contacting the highest vision for humanity and and and, and the other kingdoms, nature, and and building it together. So I wouldn't be too worried about the fact that people don't always talk in that language initially. That, that's what we're getting to, the stage where we're evolving to is being conscious, mm -hmm. not just doing it, being conscious of it. That's the whole point of it. Sure, but the, the doing has to come from a certain level of consciousness. It can't... Yeah, you know, I, I can see slightly mm -hmm. what you're saying. The, the lady behind, I think, had something to say. Hi. Um, it's a feeling with me, yeah. I'm not very academic kind of person, but I have this feeling we come here and we listen to all this uh, in a very academic way, I, I, is my feeling, yeah? And in the practical 
world uh, where the change needs to be done. Yeah? And how much influence this one million to two million groups or institutions are really doing when we use such a high level ways to communicate things. Like, for example, how much are we taking from here today? Yeah? So I'm listening here and I go home. Which kind of shampoo I'm using? Which kind of washing up I'm using? Which kind of, of uh, soap uh, to wash my clothes? I live here in London, a rich city, in one of the posh area, Chiswick, yeah? And only a few months ago, we began uh, really recycling everything, plastic, um, different kinds of paper, and so on. And only a few months ago, it's not even a year ago, so, and I remember, I am a person, very idealistic person as well. I want to see change. That's why I came here, yeah? But um, when, I, when I, I, I listen to this kind of thing, I think uh, how much the influence for everybody is being done. Of course, it's, it's something top-down is okay. But uh, my feeling is there is some people that are very minded, uh, directed. We need all kind of them, minded, thoughts, practical ones, and then integrate all this. Yeah, I think we have to take care to not be too uh, abstract and too high level in a sense of not doing the real change on the ground. United Nations, uh, I think it was Lula, the Brazilian president who, who put forward. Uh, in United Nations, you, you, you don't have even one representative of the South America in the permanent seats. No? And uh, the, the, this, this, this is more political, really, but I, I think the real change comes from one by one, doesn't matter country or politics or anything. It depends on each one conscious. How many of us here is coming back home and really is going to pay 20p more to use washing up that is not going to uh, need such a, a chemical transformation? To, do you understand what I'm saying here? Okay, well, how many are going to? Well, I'm, I'm, seriously, I'm... I'm sorry, I'm, sorry I'm, about my way, I'm feeling a bit... Uh, yeah. We're just going to have to... My soul is screaming here. My soul is screaming. I'm sorry, we're just going to have to draw this session to a close, because we'll have to move on in a minute. But, but would, you, would you like to say anything, maybe, before we, we go on to the next session? I agree with you saying that we change... I think we change from bottom up to top down. We change individually. We change, we have this urge of evolving as human beings and also I think that the structures evolve and have an influence towards us and I think it's happening everywhere. We change individually as groups. The systems are, are, are changing. 
some of the things like uh, environmentalists, they said that uh, the, the, the recent economic crisis with the bank bailouts, they, they speed up the process of uh, awakening of awareness for e ecological lifestyles much more than 20 years of campaigning and talking to people we better do less and consume less. And I think changing is coming from everywhere and I'll just think that Irvin Laszlo is right. We have, we have a decision, individual and group decision. Do we master the change or are we going to be victims of it? And it's up to each one of us to, uh, to take our own decisions. If my decision today is to buy soap or not soap, maybe that's my decision. I, I may have other types of decisions, but I think it, it goes to the individual, yes, but communities, cities, and big organizations as well. I'm just I'm nodding along and mm -hmm. absolutely agreeing. That I think that you're right that we have to integrate decisions at different levels. We can't just, we can't just have the academic um, discussions, and I think that some, sometimes um, that's one of the areas where the UN suffers a little because it tends to express itself in language that can sound either bureaucratic or um, academic, but in fact what it's saying is about things which are absolutely crucial to all human life and all the planetary kingdoms, you know, and so what one might say that it would be good if we could somehow give the UN a kick up the rear and get it to express itself a little bit more, with a little bit more fire and passion and perhaps a little bit more practically. Now, how we, leave, how we do that, I leave it for everyone to think about. Thank you, May, for that wonderful, inspiring vision of what is being done and is, it can be done and needs to be done by all the many individuals and groups around the world. And now we've got time for a little bit of question and answers. Now, Joan has got a microphone, and I'll ask you if you do have a question for, for, uh, for me, or an opinion you want to express or comment, please wait until Joan reaches you because we're actually recording the meeting, so it's not just a matter of being able to hear you, it's also the, the fact that we're recording what you're saying. And don't let, don't let be put off by that fact. <laughs> it's not going on national television or anything like that. <laughs> so, was, has anyone got anything they would like to ask me or an opinion they'd like to express? Is somebody here? Joan? There's one right beside you, and then we'll come to this lady here. Given that uh, meditation helps us to tune into the will to good, to Shambhala, and the word at Shambhala, um, on a telepathic level, what recommendations or suggestions might you both have for in the step-down world of conventional media uh, such that we may use that media more effectively for attunement? Very interesting question there. I'm going to pass it to you first of all. <laughs> <laughs> You're more experienced at working with media than me. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts? What about your thoughts? Maybe you want to introduce something and then we continue? It seems that you have an opinion there. I try to work with a lot of young people. I mean, I'm kind of a few decades on. And the thing is that if we look at the audience here, a lot of young people, 
here. And I think that if we can remove this barrier that is physical in our physical embodiments, we are souls of all sorts of experience and start to work on a soul-to-soul level. Therefore, I guess in our journalism and writing and those who are creatives amongst us here, if we can start using the language of media, you know, the media of language in a different way that is removing some of these barriers often by conditioning are inherent in the language that we use, we take for granted, then we could start to seed the will to good and seed some of these visualizations into the language. You need to change the language, encode the language differently. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, <clears throat> two thoughts. One of them is around um, the emergence of the global civil society, this movement of movements. They are coming as the immune system of the earth, I think somehow it is emerging. And they don't have too much space in the conventional media. However, they are reaching out and they're making a great difference on the ground. And I wonder if we still have to aim to catch the attention of the conventional media in order to be able to uh, cross the tipping point. There's a very interesting book called The Tipping Point that says that we need to reach the critical mass is about 20% that we need for great ships, for paradigm ships. So, if uh, Paul Hawking is right, saying that at this stage we are between 1 million to 2 million organizations working for environmental protection, what is the tipping point? Do we really need the media in order to be able to do this shift to sustainable lifestyles? Or are we going to reach the critical mass in time that uh, we won't exhaust the natural resources. That's one of the thoughts. And the other one around youth. I think there's something around, I have two teenager daughters and they, they kind of uh, check me out all the time, my discourse. They keep checking me. If, if I start speaking to them and they start looking and turning the iPod, I, I realize that <laughs> I'm really not communicating, you know. And so that's very good. Uh, I think that we have to update ourselves truly, you know, by checking. And we need to communicate with the language of those that we want to communicate. Uh, and using, you know, the media, the Facebooks and Twitters. And um, if this is our aim, is to reach out towards the young ones. I, the final thought is that I've been coming to when I moved to Britain, I'm from Brazil, uh, about 20 years ago, uh, I started coming to Arcane uh, School and Lucy Trust events, and I was the younger one. And I'm so glad now that I'm not the youngest one anymore. <laughs> but 20 years ago, I was the youngest one. And, uh, it, you know, I have already gray hair, I have teenager daughters, and it's like, uh, it's still so meaningful. And I know there's younger people in this room ready to engage into what this is trust, the study, the meditation, and the service triangle. There's a time for this to happen in your life. Sometimes too early is too early. All I would add to what Mia said is um, certainly I think 
it's clear that, that um, the electronic media, the internet and uh, mobile phones, all of these things are becoming more and more important, particularly in communicating with youth and between youth. And uh, I, I agree with you that there is a definitely a need for new ways of saying fundamental truths, new ways of communicating the spiritual have to be found that are relevant, that, that can ignite uh, excitement and commitment among young people and old people, you know, and middle-aged people. All, we're all included, we're all in it together. We can't leave it to the kids to do it, we have to do it too. It's never too late. Stephen Fry has a great, you know, he's a great follower on Twitter and he's not exactly young. So, <laughs> hope he's not here. Um, so, I, I, I completely agree with you that we do need to find new language and new modes of communication uh, to set this, set this kind of thing in motion. Okay, um, there was somebody here, I think, did you, did you have a point to make? If you come forward, John, please. Yes, but the lady in front of you, and then you can go next. <laughs> um, it's very um, inspiring to hear about um, all the projects that uh, Maeve was talking about and to know that there is a lot of change going on. But on the other hand, it, was to, it seemed very much practical, all the practical things. Where is the true spirituality in that? Are, people, are those communities act, actively drawing on spiritual resources which are far, far more powerful. That's the, that's the change, not to, to just to practically, which in a lot of, um, say, inverted commas, third world um, countries developing, they want change because they don't have, and we have everything they don't have, and that produced that. But where is the true spirituality in all, all that? That's what I, which you talked about at the very beginning of putting those two things together. Is there this dynamic spirit, true spiritual element in all those things? Interesting enough, Sherry Dominic, when the decade, United Nations decade of education for sustainable development was launched, was on the 1st of March of 2005. I was there, was in New York. Mr. Matsuda, who is the General Secretary for UNESCO, was there. There was about 20 sustainability educators and about 20 UN officials. It was a small event, about 50 people. And at that stage, we talk about sustainability, looking at the three official pillars of sustainability, which is the ecologic, the economic, and the social. No spiritual, no worldview, nothing. There was the three. So the whole decade is geared into equip individuals in the world to be able to design socially, economic, and ecologically sustainable systems. So when we move now halfway through, and of course, the eco-village movement, where I come from, we've been always talking about the fourth pillar, fourth pillar, the, the, sustain, the spiritual, or the worldview. When we came to half of the decade now in Bonn, uh, in March this year, uh, there was about 120 ministers of education from 120 countries there, more than 900 sustainability educators. And at that stage, UNESCO launched the new platform for the next five years, and they talked about sustainability being the social, the ecologic, and the economic, and the cultural. That was the closer a UN um, 
education and cultural and scientific organization can get into naming spirituality like a worldview. It's changing. It is changing. It's not from one day to another, but it is really changing. And I think this is like a very much also, um, we would say in the eco-village movement, there's always a glue in your community. Some, some communities, the glue is the environmental with the spiritual. Some of them is just the spiritual, like out of you in India, the glue are the teachings of Shri Aurobindo. Eco-village in crystal waters in, in Australia, the glue is the permaculture. It's very practical. Their, their spirituality is waking in the morning and walking in, in, in the wilderness and observing nature evolving. That's a different type of spirituality. I think it's important to say that uh, the multifaceted aspect of the fourth pillar of, uh, uh, of spirituality needs to be considered as we start naming it. We're we starting to name it. Of course, here we name because this is a center, but there, say we're starting to name in the official world. It's moving. I think I just just very briefly to add, I, I wouldn't be too worried about the fact that it may not be named or, or even be regarded as cultural or spiritual because I think all of these activities, these new activities are an expression of a change in consciousness and, and you know, as, as we were saying earlier, we don't always have the words for it, the words that are, when we talk about sustainability, sustainability is a, a much used, even abused word that, you know, that people are always trying to find definitions for it, but um, I think ultimately sustainability is about implementing the will to good, really, in very simple terms, it's about contacting the highest vision for humanity and, 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 and the other kingdoms, nature, and, and building it together. So I wouldn't be too worried about the fact that people don't always talk in that language initially. That, that's what we're getting to. The stage we're, we're evolving to is being conscious, mm -hmm. not just doing it. Being conscious of it, that's the whole point of it. Sure, but the, the doing has to come from a certain level of consciousness. It can't... Yeah, you know. I, I can see like you're saying. The, the lady behind, I think, had something to say. Hi. Um, it's a feeling with me, yeah. I'm not very academic kind of person, but I have this feeling we come here and we listen to all this uh, in a very academic way I, I, is my feeling, yeah, and, and in the practical world uh, where the change needs to be done, yeah, and how much influence this one million to two million groups or institutions are really doing when we use such a high level ways to communicate things, like for example, we, uh, how much are we taking from here today, yeah? So I'm listening here and I go home, which kind of shampoo I'm using, which kind of washing up I'm using, which kind of, of uh, soap uh, to wash my clothes. I live here in London, a rich city, in one of the posh area, Chiswick, yeah? 
And only a few months ago, we began uh, really recycling everything, plastic, um, different kinds of paper, and so on. And only a few months ago, it's not even a year ago. So, and I remember, I am a person, very idealistic person as well. I want to see change. That's why I came here. Yeah. But um, when I when I, I I listen to this kind of thing, I think uh, how much the influence for everybody is being done. Of course, it's, it's something top down is okay, but. Uh, my feeling is there is some people that are very minded, uh, directed. We need all kind of them, minded, thoughts, practical ones, and then integrate all this. Yeah? I think we have to take care to not be too uh, abstract and too high level in a sense of not doing the real change on the ground. United Nations, uh, I think it was Lula, the Brazilian president, who, who put forward. Uh, in United Nations, you, you, you don't have even one representative of the South America in the permanent seats. No? And uh, the, 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 this, this, this is more political, really, but I, I think the real change comes from one by one, doesn't matter country or politics or anything. It depends on each one conscious. How many of us here is coming back home and really is going to pay 20p more to use washing up that is not going to uh, need such a, a chemical transformation to understand what I'm saying here. Okay, well, how many are going to? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, seriously, I'm... I'm sorry, I'm sorry about my way, I'm feeling a bit... Uh, yeah. but we're I, just going to have to... My soul is yeah. screaming here, my well, soul is screaming. I'm sorry, we're just going to have to draw this session to a close, because we'll, we'll, we'll have to move on in a minute, but, but would, you, would you like to say anything, maybe, before we go into the next session? I agree with you saying that we change, I think we change from bottom up to top down, we change individually, we change, we have this urge of evolving as human beings and also I think that the structures evolve and have an influence towards us and I think it's happening everywhere, we change individually as groups, the systems are, are changing. Some of the things like uh, environmentalists, they said that uh, the, the, the recent economic crisis with the bank bailouts, they, they speed up the process of uh, awakening of awareness for e ecological lifestyles much more than 20 years of campaigning and talking to people we better do less and consume less. And w I think changing is coming from everywhere and I'll just think that Irving Laszlo is right. We have, we have a decision, individual and group decision. Do we master the change or are we going to be victims of it? And it's up to each one of us to, uh, to take our own decisions. If the, my decision today is to buy soap or not soap, maybe that's my decision. I, I may have 
other types of decision, but I think it, it, uh, it goes to the individual, yes, but communities, cities, and big organizations as well. I'm just I'm doing nodding along and mm. absolutely agreeing. that I think that you're right that we have to integrate decisions at different levels. We can't just we can't just have the academic um, discussions. And I think that some, sometimes um, that's one of the areas where the UN suffers a little because it tends to express itself in language that can sound either bureaucratic or um, academic. But in fact, what it's saying is about things which are absolutely crucial to all human life and all the planetary kingdoms, you know. And so, what one might say that it would be good if we could somehow give the UN a kick up the rear and get it to express itself a little bit more, with a little bit more fire and passion and perhaps a little bit more practically. Now, how we, leave, how we do that, I leave it for everyone to think about. Now it's time uh, to my pleasure, indeed, to introduce my co-worker, Lawrence Newey. Lawrence places a particular focus on the Cycle of Conferences initiative, so he's going to say something about it in the context of Earth Stewardship. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so the will could be thought of as a divine um, electric current transmitting the purpose of deity through time and space and love as the magnetic field that radiates from it, holding all units of consciousness in right relationship with one another and with that overall purpose of deity. That, of course, is the uh, ideal, but it's not the case because the powers of separatism and uh, desire are as yet far too powerful but that's where a meditating group comes in and uh, a group that's uh, integrated and working together with the same kind of frequency of thought on the same sort of topic is uh, going to be able to help step down those divine influences and uh, make a contribution in helping other people to become <coughs> spiritually aligned. So that's the will perhaps taken care of a little bit. The other word to consider is the actual word good and what does it mean? Well it actually goes back to prehistoric Germanic roots apparently in the word gath, G-A-T-H which not surprisingly is uh, the root of gather and together. It's about bringing together. And um, Pythagoras uh, used to call the creator, uh, the universal creator of everything, the good. And that's because he's drawing everything in back into himself, bringing together. And if you look at uh, the universe, the cosmos, from this perspective, then it can be thought of as a successive gradation of good. At the extreme bottom end of it, we have matter, at its most separative and diverse. And at the highest, we have spirit in its most unified and synthesized state. So perhaps we could simply but accurately describe the uh, evolutionary process as the progression of good. And if we describe it in that way, then the will for good is a way of empowering and assisting it. 
So service through group meditation, which we're going to be doing uh, shortly, is a means of wielding this direct, uh, direct access to this divine electric current of the will to help gather humanity in towards greater good and unity. So as a meditation group works together, it becomes more integrated and it becomes more unified and a subtle uh, spiritual telepathy, uh, telepathic communion starts to develop within it that does actually transform it into a spiritual organism. Group thought is in harmony. The group consciousness is starting to vibrate and to resonate as one. And the simple but the dynamic potencies of love and of goodwill, well, they serve to integrate the group further and they generate automatically in the ethers certain geometric patterns. It's what theosophists would refer to as thought forms and uh, maybe more modern um, terminology for that is what... Uh, people into chaos theory would call fractals, um, subtle fractals in the ether. Um, mandalas, or mandalas, that's another way of looking at it. Mandala, is it? Or Mandala? Not a Mandela. I always used to call Nelson Mandela Nelson Mandala, but uh, maybe I unwittingly played a part in his success. Uh, when, I think of a, when I think of a Mandala, I have a sort of vision of Nelson Mandela and Peter Mandelson <laughs> sort of fused together and gently rotating in the ether above my head around a common vortex. <laughs> but you know, let's not focus on my problems. So a mandala is actually an integrated structure. It's an integrated structure that's organised around a unifying centre. That's a beautiful description, really, of everything that, uh, from a galaxy um, focused around a layer point. Um, some would say a black hole. I wouldn't, as you know. Um, but a layer centre um, where energies from the spiritual dimensions can come in and radiate out onto the physical plane. And so, with a group that's uh, generating uh, such a thought form or mandala in the ethers, then through this vortex, spiritual potencies are going to pour and it's going to transform this thought form, it's going to energise it even more and um, turn it into a literal agent of redemption. And if a group uh, works to project that mandala somewhere and to visualise locating it somewhere, then energy is going to follow thought under the esoteric law and it's going to establish uh, energy around that mental projection and the thought form is going to appear there. And this process is the actual basis for World Goodwill Cycle of Conferences initiative where we do focus the thought form at the heart of an important meeting of potential benefit to humanity. And an obvious example is uh, the Climate Change Conference that's coming up in December in uh, Copenhagen. Um, now, as far as the actual climate change um, debate is concerned, um, there are many esoteric factors involved in climate change and uh, the newsletter, the World Goodwill newsletter that's about to come out addresses some of those. Uh, and if you're interested in them, either um, tell somebody at the back that you'd like to go on the World Goodwill mailing list or otherwise, I think we have about 
15 copies in a very rough form that you can have a little look at and see what you make of it. But the point is that the whole thing about the climate change challenge is it presents us with an opportunity for further world cooperation, further world integration to come together and to reevaluate our relationship with other kingdoms of nature. This is where the emphasis is laid in Earth stewardship because while people are understandably concerned and they're fearful of climate change of the future of the planet, Wilgood Will's particular contribution to it all is to focus on the consciousness aspect and by helping to work as a group with meditation to transform consciousness, then that's going to provide the natural impulse to work out on the physical plane in right action and to adjust those relationships into a more harmonic, uh, in a more harmonic way. So looking at the um, visualisation on Earth stewardship, the first thing we do is imaginatively draw upon the current of the will to good. Um, we visualise a tide of uh, lighted energy that's pouring down from the centre where the will of God is known and into the centre we call the race of men or the centre we call humanity. And some of you will recognise that, the majority perhaps, as being the language of the great invocation. Um, it, the ageless wisdom refers to uh, centres, uh, the whole uh, kingdoms, different kingdoms uh, in supernature um, and in normal nature as actual centres of force in the body of a, in the energy field of a supreme being that uh, religions would uh, refer to as God. Just as there are major chakras and energy centres that substand the physical body through which consciousness informs uh, the physical body, then so that's true on a more universal scale, as above, so below. The seed thought is uh, fairly self-explanatory and we imaginatively build thought into the structure. We consider the idea of humanity becoming the steward of the planet and the intermediary between higher and lower kingdoms of nature. I mean, to continue the electric theme, it's as though humanity has to come together and be like a spiritual transformer, stepping down these potencies and then directing them into the subhuman kingdoms to help accelerate and unfold their consciousness. That may all seem a little uh, far out, but it's the science of directed thought and it's most certainly going to become a long way in the future, maybe, but it is going to become an orthodox science at some point. And... Uh, I mean, even if we go back several thousand years, actually St. Paul mentioned this, he hinted at this in his epistle to the Romans, where he said, uh, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until now, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now I'm guessing that must have drawn some pretty blank expressions on the faces of some of those Romans. But nevertheless, you know, it's, uh, it, it was the truth and St. Paul was a great initiate. And uh, it's very true that uh, every 
every atom from Alice Bailey's perspective and from the Ageless Wisdom is a unit of consciousness. It has a consciousness in latency that's uh, slowly unfolding through the evolutionary process. As I'm sure you'd all agree here, that's how we view the, uh, the real science of evolution. It's consciousness that comes first. It's not the byproduct of a fortuitous concurrence of atoms coming together. Consciousness comes first and it's the driving process behind the evolution. So we'll go into the meditation now. Um, I'll read out each stage as we go along. We'll spend about 10 minutes. Good afternoon and welcome back. Join us in our meditations and reflections this afternoon on many a people across the world who are working with this theme today. There's a World Goodwill meeting taking place in New York and Geneva and as well as smaller groups around the world, they're all getting together to discuss this theme of igniting the world to good. But before we move on to the next part of our program, can we just take a few moments of silence and then say together the mantra of the new group of world service, the green card in your pack. The new group of world service, we know are a group of people who are drawn from all fields of endeavour and nationalities and they have touched the synthesising force of the world to good and seek to express it through vision and service. May the power of the one life pour through the group of all true service. May the love of the one soul characterize the lives of all who seek to aid the great one. May I fulfill my part in the one work through self-forgetfulness, harmlessness, and right speech. people in the audience mentioned the power of reconciliation and forgiveness and, and love and that's very much the theme of the second part of our program, especially strong focus on forgiveness. Our first speaker is Simon Keyes. I'm sure many of you will be familiar with um, the important work done at his centre, St. Ethelberg's Centre for Peace and Reconciliation based in East London. And Simon um, read zoology at, at Wadham College in Oxford. And then he worked with initiatives in the areas of homelessness, mental health and crime prevention. He was director of Shelter's Housing Aid Services 
for several years before setting up the Revolving Doors Agency, pioneering new approaches to helping people with mental health problems in the criminal justice system. He was the first director of Lambeth Crime Prevention Trust and moved from there to the World Community for Christian Meditation, organizing the Way of Peace 2000 interfaith initiative with the Dalai Lama in Northern Ireland. In 2003, he took four months out for a solitary walk from Budapest to London, and upon his return, he set up the Onions Project, a non-profit company making community-based videos and interfaith music and cinema projects. And he became director of St. Ethelberger's in October 2004. So we look forward very much to hearing what he has to say on the will to forgive and to reconcile. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a, a disarming experience to have your CV read out like that. Is that really me? <laughs> Uh, there's an awful lot of other things I can tell you about me. <laughs> Makes me sound so respectable. Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I'm going to find this slightly difficult because um, uh, whilst I've been aware of the work of World Goodwill, I'm not involved with the organisation anyway, and my familiarity with Alice Bailey is very, very limited indeed. So, and I'm conscious that organisations have their own language and their own culture. And when you talk about the will to, to forgive and the will to reconcile, you mean something probably rather different to the way I understand it. So what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about what I understand about the nature of forgiveness and reconciliation uh, from our work at Snettelbergers, and then leave it to you to make the connections. And then if we have time for some questions, then we can perhaps explore uh, uh, some, some of that. Uh, my, my concept of will is formed by a rather unfortunate early uh, uh, um, enthusiasm for Schopenhauer and that actually has given me <laughs> a rather different sense of uh, the will has been something very negative but uh, anyway, but uh, still, we'll steer away from that so, um, just before we start close your eyes again please how have you been hurt? who has hurt you? What do you think about that person who has hurt you? Who have you hurt? What have you done to other people that has hurt them? What do you think about the people you have hurt? I, um, I start with that simply because there's a great danger, I think, in talking about forgiveness and reconciliation of hypothesizing about other people's lives. And I encourage you to test whatever I say against your own experience. As Martin Luther King said, forgiveness is not just an occasional act, it is a permanent attitude of our daily lives. So you should have been forgiving people today, people should have been forgiving you, and you will have done something today 
to reconcile uh, some division in the world or in your life. Um, let me start by uh, telling you about uh, someone who's become a friend of mine, Juan Roberto Menendez. Uh, Juan um, is a lovely man, a, a Hispanic speaker, a fruit picker from Florida, uh, who's come to St. Burgers and spoken very eloquently there. Uh, a few years ago, he didn't even speak English, so it's great that he comes there. So why does Juan come to St. Burgers? Well, because he was locked up uh, in a top security prison in Florida for 18 years on a charge of murder uh, for which he uh, had no responsibility at all. He was framed by the FBI. And eight times during those 18 years, he was a day away from being executed under the death penalty. And uh, Juan never realized, uh, I think, when he was a young man, that he would be speaking in the heart of the city of London about the subject of forgiveness, but he does that, and it's, believe me, it's a very powerful experience to hear him speak. And I asked him why, uh, he, why he does this, why he travels the world speaking about forgiveness. And he says something like, well, if I didn't, I wouldn't be alive, because the pain of dealing with what's happened to me would just be too great. And it reminds me of something that the great Russian poet Irina Ratashinskaya uh, says, if you start to hate, you can never stop. You can burn yourself from inside. It's not a great line. You can burn yourself from inside. To retain one's personality, to survive, simply to keep common sense, one has to kill hatred. Now, St. uh when it was blown up by the IRA, um, uh, 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 and uh, uh, it wasn't insured, uh, so actually the the fact that we now run a center for reconciliation, there is something of a, of a miracle. Um, and it's worth saying that the, one of the more miraculous things about Snattelbergers is that given it was redundant before it was blown up, uh, the last four years, 50,000 people from 41 countries have visited the building to share stories, insights, experiences, skills about the building of relationships across divisions. That's my shorthand for reconciliation. And the most important thing to know about Snettelbergers is we don't actually have a theory of forgiveness or a theory of reconciliation. What we have done is we have listened and we've learned from those 50,000 people, and they keep coming in. There are, there are people there this afternoon, there will be more this evening. So um, rather than uh, give you a sort of theoretical idea about what I think uh, the will to forgive might involve, let me share with you four, four propositions about uh, forgiveness that we formulated by listening to people like Juan talk. The first is that forgiveness is a journey of personal growth for which nobody can take responsibility but yourself. Nobody can take responsibility for, but yourself. Now that's a very provocative statement because perhaps it doesn't depend on the perpetrator, the person who's hurt you. There may be things that person can do in terms of reparation and apology and so forth. But actually, I think one of the things we're learning is that forgiveness is about an inner change of heart, what Christians would call metanoia. And it is something for which only we can take responsibility. It does not depend on other people. Having said that, proposition number two, nobody can, can compel us to forgive. Some people find it impossible to give and go through their whole lives without being able to forgive something that's terrible 
uh, something terrible that's happened to him. And I'll give you an example of that in a minute. But what we must recognize, as Juan did, is the cost of unforgiveness. We need to be able to let go of the pain that not being able to forgive causes us if we are to function properly as loving human beings. So the cost of unforgiveness is, is motivation, if you like, or perhaps the will to forgive, or one, of, one, one aspect of that. The third is that forgiveness involves us in, ma- in making decisions, and in particular finding ways to replace negative emotions with positive ones. Just go back and think about the person who hurt you, and that doesn't feel good. You have negative emotions around that. How can you transform those emotions into something, something positive? And then the fourth proposition is that, and this is the most extraordinary thing, that we cease to be victims ourselves by practicing vulnerability and loving behavior towards others. And this is the trick. This is the trick of forgiveness. That actually, much as we may want to forgive other people, um, uh, and uh, and, uh, the the reality is that it is by uh, us forgiving the people who have hurt us, that we are able to forgive others. Reciprocity, that's a very important thing. Um, if, um, if you think of the famous uh, peace prayer, uh, often misattributed to St. Francis, it was written in 1910 in Normandy, in case you're interested, um, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born to life. And in the Christian tradition, one of the, at the heart of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This principle of reciprocity. So the will to forgive, I think, arises from this fundamental recognition of the interdependence of victim and perpetrator, and that we are both at any one time. And let me just take this a step further. Uh, the Dalai Lama was mentioned in, in the, the, the preamble. I have heard him speak many times. And he comes up with a, a statement which I as a Christian can fully understand because it's at the heart of our teachings too. Your enemy is your best friend. Your enemy is your best teacher. When you hear your enemy talk about you, you are hearing a new picture of yourself. Uh, the great Christian theologian Stanley Hauer says, God is our enemy because actually it is only when we see uh, ourselves through the eyes of our enemy that we really understand who we are. So, uh, part of the importance of forgiveness is that we need to re-establish our relationship with the person who has hurt us and we as perpetrators need to find a different relationship with the people we've hurt in order uh, that we can grow into human, human beings, uh, into, into, into fully functioning human beings who are actually enabled to become reconcilers in the world. So those are some observations based on what people have said at, uh, at St. Ethelbergers about, uh, about forgiveness. The four propositions, it's a, we can only be responsible for it ourselves. The cost of unforgiveness is something we may not be able to live with unless we do something about it. We have to transform our negative emotions and that this reciprocity of making ourselves vulnerable is the way to, uh, perhaps to, 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 to travel. So, and that in doing that, listening to our enemies may be the best way we have of making that transformation. And we have a lovely exercise. One of the things we, we do at Snowflake is we teach listening. 
and uh, that's probably the most important thing we teach. Um, and uh, uh, we have a lovely exercise where uh, to check whether you've listened to someone you disagree with, you have to repeat back to them what they have said until they are happy with that. Now, you know, if it's a disagreement about football, oh no, no, not football, football's too important. But if, if it was a disagreement, you know, about, about something trivial, uh, that's not a big dis- issue. But if you are an Israeli and a, pa- a Palestinian talking with each other, where these differences are questions of matter of life and death, then, my God, it matters to be able to uh, listen really, really hard. So that what you are listening to is what the other person is actually saying, not your projections, your stereotypes about what that person is saying to you. So, in that sense, uh, listening to your enemy is uh, about coming to terms with a bigger reality than yourself. So, reconciliation. What can I tell you about reconciliation? Well, I would, the the simple phrase I use to describe reconciliation is the the building of relationships across divisions caused by conflict. uh, uh, And it could be uh, a, um, a physical conflict, it could be a war, it could be a psychological conflict, it could be a cultural division, it could certainly be a, a division of faith or belief or religion of some kind. So reconciliation is about the building of relationships across those divisions, not the neutralising of those divisions themselves. It is, but it's about being able to relate to people who think differently to us. And uh, it is the inability for us to be able to uh, relate to people who think differently to us, which causes uh, is a major source of, of, of conflict. So let me tell you another little story. Um, once a year, we give some little burgers to the Japanese community in London, and they put on a reception, a beautiful reception, uh, very courteous, very uh, 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 peaceful, beautifully executed, for um, the few remaining victims of the Burma campaign. Uh, I say victims, the survivors, they would describe themselves, and some of them describe themselves, in fact, as victors of the Burma campaign. They're old soldiers who were put through absolute hell in the, in the, the, the camps run by the Japanese. And these, are, uh, this, these events are actually the highlight of my year at Snettelbergers because it is the best example I've ever come across of people who have been able not only to find a way of forgiving the people who hurt them, but they've gone to the next step of reconciliation, which is to build very powerful, transformed relationships with the people who, uh, who hurt them. And I'm not just talking general terms here. I'm not just talking about British uh, and Japanese. I'm talking about individual so- soldiers and the people who tortured them. Um, and not only has this uh, transformed the personal relationships between them, uh, it's transformed the relationships all around their families, their friends. And what was so interesting this year, there's only, only half a dozen of the, these um, Burma veterans now left in this, in this, in this campaign uh, society. Um, but the next generation of Japanese now have taken responsibility to continue this. And so this year, not only do we have these marvellous old men who can teach us more about forgiveness and transformation, and despite their stiff you know, upper British lip and the, you know, the, the moustache and all the rest of it, um, they can teach us far more about this than, than probably many, many religious figures. And, but the, the lovely thing is this year it was also full of young, young Japanese. And the outbreak of friendship and warmth was, was marvellous to behold. So there is kind of reconciliation in action. What, what, makes, it, uh, what makes it possible? Um, well, um, the person I think who has given us the biggest clue at Snafferbergers uh, is um, someone called John Paul Lederach, a Mennonite theologian. And he made the, uh, 
extraordinary observation that in Psalm 85 verse 10, there is the most remarkable ancient wisdom about reconciliation. And Psalm 85 verse 10 in his translation goes, mercy and truth are met together, justice and peace have embraced, or kissed each other even you could say. Mercy and truth have met together, justice and peace have kissed each other. And his great observation about this is that reconciliation is not simply about mercy plus truth plus justice plus peace. These things are always in tension. They are contradictory sometimes. So reconciliation is the creation of a psychological or sometimes a physical space where people can understand and explore and share the connections between mercy, truth, justice and peace. Um, and uh, uh, just to, I don't have much longer to speak, but um, if, think about how the uh, South African uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission actually functioned and the 31 other commissions that have subsequently followed that around, around the world. Um, but, but mercy and truth and justice, think about the relationship between those. That actually, although the South African Truth Commission never used the word amnesty, it is certainly the case that people who were prepared to tell the truth in public and to own up to what they had done were not actually pursued through the courts. So they were shown mercy. Uh, and the justice, to some extent, was put on one, on one side. Uh, mercy were, uh, was the enabling transformative thing that enabled people who were genuinely prepared to accept the truth of what they'd done, to transform their lives and to transform the relationships of the, the, uh, the, um, with the victims who had suffered at their hands. And there are many stories of that, um, uh, and come to Snettelberg and, and hear some of them. So, in terms of the, the will uh, for reconciliation, um, I think it comes from opening up a space in our own lives to think uh, and explore the emotions and the relationships in our lives that may need, that may uh, involve mercy or may require mercy, truth, justice and peace. And peace particularly, uh, I think, means in this context right language, peaceful behaviour and being uh, peace, peaceful to oneself. So I'm conscious that that is a little bit more uh, abstract perhaps than I, uh, I was in, intending. But I hope it gives you an idea um, of uh, the fact that at Snettelberger's, by listening to people who have been in the most difficult situations in the world, I'm thinking at the moment, for instance, we have many uh, Tamils and uh, Sinhalese meeting, we have Tibetans and Japanese, we have uh, many people from the Middle East uh, meeting, to try and find ways of building relationships that will transform the world around them. And uh, uh, that's the commodities involved in that, to, to go back to those, uh, in, rather than theorise about I just think about Juan Roberto Menendez, and I just think about those lovely men like my grandfather, who come to see us uh, uh, on, uh, in September each year to be guests of the Japanese. So, um, don't think too much about it, do it. So, how have you been hurt? Who has hurt you? Who have you hurt? And what are you going to do about it? Thank you. <laughs> 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 so, so I'll come back to it.
Morning, sleepy. Guess you want McDonald's for breakfast? Uh, how'd you know? You're sleep humming the McDonald's jingle. I don't know what you're talking about. You just did it. No, I didn't. So, McDonald's? I could use my cafe latte. There's a McDonald's for every morning. Start your morning at McDonald's with a delicious sausage biscuit and savory hash browns for only $1.50. At participating McDonald's for a limited time cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. How do you not hear that?